You know, it's a surreal experience when you've lived with the terrible dread of something for a long period of time and when that thing that you've been dreading, that moment that you've been dreading, that scenario that you've been dreading actually comes to fruition, isn't it? When you've known for some period of time that there is an operation that is, to, that is ahead and you've dreaded it and you've dreaded it and you've dreaded it and then it's operation day and you, you're back there and you're in the room with your family and you finally come, the anesthesiologist comes and the nurse comes and she says that it's time and they, they sign off on the place and they do all the, the procedures right and, and finally you have to give your husband or your wife the, the last kiss goodbye. And you're not really 100% sure if you're coming back or not and you, you get wheeled back there and they take your naked body and they throw it up on that ice cold metal table. How about that for vivid imagery for you this morning? Just making sure you're with me. Or you've been, you've been dreading for, for some time that, that person in your life that you love and, and they're, they're, you know that they're deathly ill and you know that it's, it's only going to end one way. And so you sit there by their bedside and you reminisce and you tell stories and you remember the way things were and you remember growing up or you remember happier days. And then it's imminent. And then they pass from this life and into the next. And as much as you were prepared and as much as you knew that the day was coming and as much as you understood it, there's something profound about that moment, isn't there? There's something profound about that moment that, that the dread was coming, you knew it was going to happen, but when it, actually, when it actually takes place, there's nothing that could have really prepared you for it. Or you have that, that meeting with your boss on Monday, right? That meeting with the boss on Monday, and you know exactly how that meeting is going to go. You know exactly what he's going to, what he's going to say. And so all weekend long, you play out what you're going to say in your mind. You play out how you're, how you're going to work it through and, and how you're going to defend yourself or, or how you're going to make your case and lay things out and you work it through and work it through. But then, then when the moment of truth arrives, when, when, the, when the moment of dread becomes the moment of realization, all of those plans, all of those prepared statements go out the window, right? This morning where we are, the moment of dread becomes the moment of realization for Jesus as Gethsemane turns into not the place of prayer, not the place of agony, but it transforms into the place of betrayal and the place of arrest. We see where Jesus is no longer preparing his disciples, where Jesus is no longer sweating blood, but now where Jesus will have the knife placed between his shoulder blades and where Jesus will be escorted before his Mickey Mouse trial ultimately to be executed and hanged upon a cross where he will die bearing the wrath, the unmitigated wrath of his father to declare his cry of dereliction. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 26 as we see the moment that has finally come. Matthew chapter 26, we'll begin in verse 47. When you get there, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Matthew chapter 26, we'll begin in verse 47.
We'll read through verse 56. God's word says, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, then it, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Now, you have to remember the way that these passages come together. I know your Bible may have headings and we have verses and all those things, but... but this is one of those places where it's kind of unfortunate that we have a break. There's really no break in the action, okay? That if you were watching a, a movie, there would not even, or if you're watching a, a made-for-television movie, there would not even be a commercial break here, okay? Th- th- this is all one continuous scene that, that Jesus says to his disciples, arrive, let's go, let's meet them, okay? And about the time Jesus says, arise, the, here comes Judas with all of the army. All right, there's probably most... People believe there would have been more than a hundred police and soldiers that would have been with Jesus, um, been with Judas. So this is a, a pretty large posse that has come with, with Judas. And so Jesus says, arrive, let's go. And here Judas says, hey, we're here. And so this is kind of all happening simultaneously and at the same time. Now you have to remember, it's, it is the highest priority of the Sanhedrin to be subtle and stealthy, okay? Remember, they don't want to cause a riot. Jesus' popularity is unprecedented at the time. There's perhaps only John the Baptist would have been able to rival Jesus' uh, popularity at the time. And so they don't want to cause a, a riot. That throughout the whole time, they would have said they wanted to have Jesus murdered already. They wanted to have Jesus arrested already, but they haven't done it because they didn't want the crowd to turn on them. And so remember, they've been on the smear campaign again and again, trying to, trying to catch Jesus with all these trick questions, trying to pin Jesus down, has been against the law, trying to divide opinion on Jesus, and they've been completely unsuccessful. They've not been able to trick Jesus. They've not been able to turn opinion on Jesus. They've not been effective in any of those means. And so now they've resorted to nighttime guerrilla warfare, nighttime ambush, right? Like they're going to sneak in, get him under the cover of night, And they're going to bring him before the people. And that is ultimately why they've come and they've hired Judas. And so they come in to Gethsemane. And John tells us that Judas brings them into Gethsemane because this is a place that Jesus frequently went. That this was a place that Judas expected him to go. Now, I read that as meaning that Judas likely took them to other places first. 
So probably what happened was Judas leaves them in the upper room where they've had the Last Supper. Judas leaves them where Jesus has just instituted the, the Lord's Supper and all of those things. And he probably takes them there first. All right, so they go up there and he's like, all right, sorry guys, he's not here. But I know a couple of other places that we can look. There's only, there's only a few places that Jesus really likes to go. And I know that Jesus was worried. Jesus kind of knew some things that was up. He was talking about the betrayer. He knows some stuff's up. So, so I know a place that he liked to go and pray. I know after he had a full stomach, I know, after, I know a place that he liked to go and pray. A place in the Mount of Olives, a place called Gethsemane. Let's go and check out that place. And so G Judas, being close to Jesus, knew that he liked to go to Gethsemane to pray. The place of the olive press, right? And so he takes Judas, he takes G uh, his, his posse there, and there he finds Jesus. Now, it's important for us to understand this is not a coward Jesus, meaning Jesus, this is not a coward there hiding from all of his, his oppressors. This is not Jesus being a coward hiding from the entourage, hiding from all of the arresters, hoping that they don't find him. Jesus is still in a public place. Jesus is still in a place where Judas, the man that he knows is going to betray him, Judas, the one that Jesus has basically revealed is going to betray him, is, knows that he, he, him to be, has frequently traveled with him to be, and, and Jesus looks to his other disciples, the other 11, and says, all right, let's go find him, right? Like, they're coming, let's go out and meet them. Not exactly the words of a coward. If, if, if it's me, I'm more like David, all right? Let's go find the crags in the rocks, okay? Let, let, let's escape to the hill country. Let's find the crags in the rocks and lay low for a while. Jesus is like, let's go have a time of prayer and intercession, okay? That, that, that's not me, man. I, I, I'm bolting. I'm getting out of town. Not Jesus. That is not the picture that we have of Jesus. Jesus is not a coward. Jesus is not hiding. Jesus is not running from the will of God. Jesus is not running from the cross. In fact, what we're going to see later on is what we have a picture of Jesus doing in Gethsemane is we have a picture of Jesus actually embracing the painful providence of God. We have Jesus embracing the painful will of God. Now what's interesting is when we look at the entourage of people, the posse of people that Judas brings with him, the people that, that he brings with him, and what I think they teach us. Now, they come, and they've got torches and pitchforks and clubs and, and, and swords. William Hendrickson, he puts it really eloquently. He says this, he says, do you really, he says, uh, they come with torches and lanterns to seek out the light of the world. They come with swords and clubs to subdue, subdue the Prince of Peace. Jesus looks back at them, and he says, he, he says, I'm not a robber. The word robber there probably, he, he's probably implying, this is a word that was typically used to talk about the zealots or, or the political revolutionaries. He said, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm not, in other words, I'm not a military insurrectionist. I'm not trying to like overthrow Rome here, okay? I'm just a preacher, I'm just a teacher in the temple. I've been teaching there all, all week long. You see me over there. You know what I'm doing. And here you come to, against me, a preacher, a man armed with scrolls, and you're bringing swords. I'm here, and I'm opening up Isaiah, and you're coming against me with clubs? Jesus is pointing out their fear, right? Jesus is pointing out the overkill of what they're doing. 
Jesus is pointing out the fulfillment to his disciples of so many of the things that he has said to them. He's pointing out to his disciples the days that he has been explaining to them, the days that he has been predicting to them, they have come. Now to us, it sounds crazy, right? This is the Prince of Peace. This is the light of the world. Maybe they're not as crazy as we expect. Now, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in his hometown as Nazareth, his hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus is there and he's teaching in the synagogue. And he begins to teach in the synagogue and he begins to make claims that, that he is the Son of God. He begins to, to teach from Isaiah. And teaching from Isaiah, he begins to say that, that he is the fulfillment of this text. And do you remember what they say? Isn't this Joseph and Mary's boy? Isn't this Joseph and Mary's boy? Like, like, we saw him run around with our kids. Who does he think he is? Who does he think? We saw him run around with, with spaghetti sauce on his face. Like, like we saw him run around here, here and Mary changing his diapers, okay? Like, and now he wants to try to convince us, oh, spaghetti face, that, that, that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah? And they run him out of town. And they run him all the way up against the cliffs. And they decide that what they're going to do as a blasphemer is that they're going to throw him over the edges of the cliffs and kill him. And it says that Jesus just passes through. He just passes through. Now, he didn't sneak through. These are people that known him all his life. These are people that recognize him as, as Joseph and Mary's son. He didn't sneak through. He just passes through. He didn't just, he didn't just find his way and crawl through. They've got him pinned up against, the, up against the, the cliffs. He didn't just jump over the ocean. I mean, he's not that. He, he, just, he just passes through. Maybe even more at the forefront of their minds would have been what happened in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is there and he's, he's teaching in the temple. And he begins to teach and he's teaching on Abraham. And you know what he says? He says, before Abraham, I was. Before Abraham, I was. And every single person there in the temple, every Jew there knew exactly what he meant. What he was saying was that he was preeminent over Father Abraham, the father of the Israel, Israelite people. He was God. He was older than Abraham. He predated Abraham. He was the one that had given the faith to Abraham. And he was, he was beckoning the language of, of the Exodus when, God, when Moses had said, who will I say sent me? I am sent you. Right? He says, before Abraham... I was, I am, I am God, I am deity, I am the son of man who predates Abraham that has come to deliver all of mankind. And what they decide to do is they decide that they must kill him. And he just passes through. He just passes through. One of the most, most, most completely populated and, and chaotic and dense cities in the world. This, this completely riotous crowd, and he just passes through them. And so what they've resolved is this is a slippery, powerful fellow, okay? 
This is Jesus. Whatever you want to believe about him, this is a slippery, powerful fellow. And then you've got Judas, and Judas has been there, and he has seen whatever he believes about Jesus, whether he believes it is divination, whether he believes it is some kind of some kind of satanic, demonic, whatever he believes, he has watched as crippled people have walked and hungry people have eaten. He has watched as this man who he thought was a ghost has walked by on water. He has watched as as storms have obeyed his commandment. And he says, man, I will go, but you're going to send me an army. You're going to send me an army. And so you start thinking. You start thinking. It's interesting. They think that there's over a hundred that have come. The chief priests, most of them don't show up. Caiaphas, not seen. There, there, there are temple priests there. They believe there to be Roman soldiers that are there. And here is Judas. And Judas goes, and they, he decides that he's going to identify Jesus with, with a kiss. Now we wonder, why would Jesus, as popular as he was, why would Jesus have had to have been identified with the kids? Well, first of all, you, you're in the Mount of Olives, and so you have, you have the shade of all of the olive trees, right? So, so it's hard to see. Like It can even be hard to recognize your wife or your husband in the midst of, of the dark and in the shade, right? Like It can be, it can be difficult to even see there, but you've got to remember, this is like pre-Fox News and Facebook, okay? So, so like a celebrity in antiquity, like in the ancient nar- nar- Near East, can be difficult, like different than a celebrity in, in our day, right? Like I feel like if Tom Brady walked by, I'd be able to like point out Tom Brady. But in, in Jesus' day, you might have heard the name Tom Brady, but you may have never actually seen a picture of Tom Brady. Like you didn't have social media like scrolling through your phone all the time or, you know, a 65-inch LED, you know, watching Tom Brady ball on the Packers or something like you, you didn't see that right and so you you might have heard the name of Jesus you might have heard testimonies of Jesus but never have seen the the face of Jesus or a picture of Jesus and so you have one of the 12 it was necessary for him to to be able to identify identify Jesus and this is what what Judas is really paid for Judas, Judas is paid the 30 shekels of silver by the chief priest so that he can first of all get them there at night get them there when it's subtle and stealthy, and get them there uh, and identify him when ordinary person couldn't identify him. Get and identify him maybe in a way that would be clear and obvious. Now, he identifies him in, in the most intimate way possible, doesn't he? He identifies him in the most intimate way possible. I want you just to imagine yourself. Transport yourself back 2,000 years ago. And there's a conversation that's happening. There's a conversation that's taking place among Judas. He's the betrayer. And you have, you have all the chief priests and they're brainstorming. And, they're, and, and, and it's got to go just right because Jesus has made them look like fools enough times, right? And, and they don't want that to happen again. This is their shot. They've got, they've got the silver already on the lines that that, that, that can't go wrong again. And they, they are determined. This is the Passover like that. that there's a lot happening. The, the population of the city is five times its ordinary. Like it just, there's just a lot to go on. On. There's a lot that can go wrong here. So how are we going to know? How, how, what's the signal going to be? Are we going to yell something? Are you going to give him a high five? Like, like what's the signal going to be? How are we going to know that that's the man? How are we going to know which one it is that we're going to address? And Judas speaks up. He says, I know what we can do. There's a way that we always greet one another. 
There's a way that we, there's a way that we always say hello. There's a way that, that G- Jesus has, has made common among us that Jesus and I are, are, are quite close. So every time that, that we, that every time we meet one another for the first time, I, I kiss him and he kisses me back. So, so what I'll do is I'll make a point that, that Jesus, he, he will be the first one that I will kiss. I will go to him, the one who calls himself the son of man, the one who has who is, who is taught me, the one who's been so kind to me, the one who has done all these things. I'll just go up to him and I'll kiss him. Like I have all of these other things, all these other times. That's how, that's how I'll betray him. One of the other accounts, Jesus even looks back to him and he says, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You see, the closer someone is to you, the more betra- painful the betrayal is, isn't it? Benedict Arnold was a general in the revolution. He was one of Washington's most trusted men. Some of the, some of the other generals didn't, didn't particularly like his ambition, but... But, but Washington saw some of himself in Arnold, and he ends up promoting Arnold and putting Arnold over one of his most important outposts, one of his most important forts over West Point. And, and Arnold, having felt slighted by so many of the other revolutionaries, by feeling slighted by, by, and feeling like his, his ambition had been stifled, he takes the, the, the West Point post and he immediately uses it as leverage, as trade leverage to, to advance his own ambition and he signs it over to the British Army. Signs it over to the British Army so that he can have a, a higher prominence, so that he can be an officer, so that he can have a certain standing. And that's why we remember his name, isn't it? We remember his name because of how close he was to Washington, by, by how esteemed he was by Washington. We, re, we remember his name because of how revered he was in the revolution, by, by how high his rank is. Can you imagine today one of our four-star generals defecting over to Russia? Can you, can you comprehend the level of news that would be? It's because of how, cl- how close he would be and how highly he would be ranked sitting there at cabinet meetings and war strategy meetings and having all of that information then defecting over to the enemy. And here's Judas. Here's Judas sitting there. Having been there as Jesus had prayed to his father, having been there as Jesus had given the Sermon on the Mount, having been there as Jesus had wept over Jerusalem, having been there as Jesus had had sought the good of so many, had sought the good of his own disciples, having been there, and here he is, and he is placing the knife between the shoulder blades of Jesus, and he is pushing it as deeply as he can and twisting the handle. He's going to betray the Son of Man, and he betrays him with a kiss. So many times over these last few weeks, I've, I've made mention back to Matthew chapter 10. I'd like to just for us to read that together now and, and go and look at that in HD. Would you turn there with me quickly now so we can just read a few verses together because I think, I think they're helpful for us in this context just to see what's, what's happening. Because as we remember, we remember that Jesus, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to do what he's not willing to do. Jesus doesn't lead us where he's unwilling to go. Jesus doesn't command of us what, what he never experienced. 
So in Matthew chapter 10, let's read verses 16 through 24 together. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious for how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Brothers and sisters, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. And he was not just talking to his disciples of that day, he was talking to his disciples of our day. I'm sending you out to a kingdom that is not yet submitted to my reign. I'm sending you out into an empire that is not yet fully submitted to my rulership. I'm sending you out as my sheep, as my salt, as my light, into a land of darkness, into a land of, into a land of rot, into a land of wolves, and they will seek to devour you. But understand, they will only do to you what they have first done to me. I am sending you out where I have been willing to go. Brothers will rise against brothers. Fathers will rise against children. But I, I, I have had a brother rise against me. I understand. See, Judas was a brother. Judas was a brother. And Judas would rise against the Lord Jesus, and Judas would bring heartache and pain into the life of the Lord in ways that all of us have experienced, in ways that all of us would know, except perhaps more profoundly than any of us will experience. The Lord Jesus has known brokenness and heartache in ways that allow us to identify with our Savior more intimately than anybody else can understand unless, unless you have walked with Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, we will not live, we will not live in this broken world and avoid having a broken heart. We will not live in this broken world without, and avoid having a broken heart. For most of us, when we come into the Christian life, we come into the Christian life quite naive, don't we? We come into the Christian life and we think, now I have Jesus, now I have turned from my sin, now I have turned from all of those things that were bringing me down, I have turned from all of those things that were bringing damage into my life, I have turned from those things that were bringing harm to my soul and bringing harm to my heart, and we believe, we believe that now I will know joy, now my marriage will be easy, now my parenting will be better, now all, and, and, and brothers and sisters, there is some truth in, in, in all of that, right? But the lie that we buy is that we are naive enough to believe that we are going to skate on sacrifice and skate on brokenness and skate on hardship. But as long as we live in the midst of a broken world, we will face brokenness. As long as we live in the midst of a, of a world that is not yet fully submitted to the kingdom rule of Christ, 
We will know what it is to have a heart that is broken. We are not going to leave this world unscathed. You're not going to have, you're, you're, things are not going to work out as easily as you think they should. Your marriage is not going to be as easy as you think it ought to be. Raising your kids is not going to be as easy as you think it ought to be. Having your career, building your career is not going to be as easy as you think it ought to be. Serving in your church is not going to be as easy as it ought to be. Being healthy is not going to be as easy as it ought to be. Saving money is not going to be as easy as it ought to be. Living in this life with the Holy Spirit, trying to be good, trying to raise, live out the gospel, trying to anchor yourself in the scriptures is not going to be as easy as you believe it ought to be because we live in a world that is not yet fully surrendered to Christ. And even for those of us who are surrendered to Christ, as we surrender our lives to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of darkness comes against us comes against us. And what Matthew 10 teaches and what Judas illustrates is that as we submit to Christ, the world comes against us and we will not escape brokenness. Jesus didn't escape it and we won't escape it. You know, if you look around our church, you don't see a lot of wrinkles here. We're a young church. And I praise the Lord for that. Sometimes I wish we had more wrinkles, all right? And so, you know, for those of you that, that got some years, praise God that you're here, all right? Like, we need your wisdom. Can I just say that again? Like, we, we need you. And, and we just need some of y'all to just sometimes say, chill out, everybody. Just chill out. But we've got, we've got a lot of young, a lot of young married couples, a young, and I believe that, that God is going to use so many of you to change the world. I, I really do. Um, we've, we've, I mean, y'all heard from James Johnstone sitting right up here. I, I believe God is going to use young men like that. We've got a lot of them, man. Daniel Ness, is the, I mean, he calls me all the time. Hey, man, what is this about? I, we got young men. I believe that young women are going to change the world. I am convinced of that. I am convinced of that. But there is something in our generation. There is something in our generation that sometimes we have difficulty when things don't go the way that we think they ought to go. That's just real life. There is something in our generation, I, I include myself, that when, when things aren't as easy as we believe they ought to be, that's hard for us. But brothers and sisters, let us look to Judas. If there has ever been one that has walked with the Father, it is Jesus. If there has ever been one that is full of the Spirit, it is Jesus. If there has ever been one that practiced the disciplines, it is Jesus. If there has ever been one that it ought to go well with, it is Jesus. Don't listen to the participation trophies. Look at Jesus and pursue Christ. It isn't going to go well with you. We will know brokenness. Let us press on toward the kingdom of the gospel. Let us press on and persevere until the end. For the one who perseveres until the end will be saved. Will be saved. And that's why there were 11 more. And that's why there are 300 of us that we might be bound together in the spirit of the gospel to help each other, each other change the world because it's not gonna be as easy as it ought to be. It's not gonna be as easy as it ought to be. Now for Peter, oh, sweet Peter, he thought this was the moment. 
He thought this was the moment, y'all. Peter's been waiting for his moment, his moment of glory, all right? Peter's been speaking up, beating his chest, saying, I'll die for you, Jesus. Everybody else may lay down, but I will die for you. And now, now that, now that the, the posse has shown up with pitchforks and they've shown up with torches, Peter pulls out a sword. Some people believe it was like a, a Passover knife or it was a sword. And now you've got to remember, Peter is a fisherman, right? Peter's no soldier. And so Peter draws out, and apparently Peter wants to cut off the head of this. this he's not even a soldier, the guy that he is. John tells us this was Malchus, the the. The, the slave, the, I mean the poor slave of the chief priest, all right? So, so not exactly the bravest move, move here, Peter. He pulls out the, the sword and he hits, and he can't even take the guy's head off, which seems like an easy move, right? He bounces it off the guy's skull and hits an ear, all right? So he's aiming for a head and takes the guy's ear off. So in Peter's mind, this is what's going to happen. Peter is going to be a catalyst. It's going to be this catalyst for this, this triumphant victory for the Messiah that's going to lead to the Messiah going up on and, and taking the throne and this great military victory. And instead, he bounces it off the guy's skull, lops off the guy's ear, and Jesus looks at him and he's like, do you want to die? Do you want to die? Live by the sword, die by the sword. There's a hundred of them, Peter. Jesus picks up the ear and he, like, glues it back on with magic. I mean, not, we know it's not magic. I mean, that, that sounded like divination. I, I don't mean divination. Don't use that as the Sunday short, please. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, anyway, C.S. Lewis makes it look like, he's a godly man, so, but that's not what I mean, okay? Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Okay. But then he says something incredible, right? He says something incredible. He says, do you not think that I could pray, I could pray silently in my heart? Or do you not think that I could cry out with a war cry prayer and in an instant, in an instant, 12 legions of angels would descend on this place and annihilate these creeps? Do you not think that, Peter? Do you think I need you, a fisherman, bouncing knives off people's skulls? Do you think that's what I need? Can you imagine the bravado melting away in Peter in that moment? Can you imagine? Here's Jesus rebuking Peter, who thought he was being brave and bold. Now, if you're wondering, if you're wondering what that would look like, think back. Think back to 2 Kings chapter 8, and you have Elisha. Elisha is there, and he's in Dothan. And the king of Syria is coming in, and he's going to conquer Israel. And Elisha, the great prophet of God, is going to go, and he's going to warn the king of Israel that, that the king of Syria is about to completely encamp all of Israel. And Elisha is there, and, and, the, and, the, and he's asleep sleeping peacefully and the, and the servant of Elisha comes and he wakes him up and it seems like Elisha is a little a little peeved that his servant has woke him up and he's like we're completely surrounded by the military of, Sy of Syria we're going to be taken down there's going to be this great calamity right and Elisha's like man Lord would he prays Lord would you just 
open up his eyes so that he can see. And in an instant, the servant is able to see down in the valley. And just dreaming in the valley are all of these angels on chariots of fire, all going and riding these creatures of battle. And here's, here, here's what the point is. It wouldn't have mattered if Judas rolled up with tanks and F-22s. It wouldn't have mattered if he had nuclear warheads. Jesus wasn't going with, with Judas because he was passive. Jesus was going with Judas because he was willing. Jesus wasn't going with Judas because he was passive. Jesus was going with Judas because he was willing. Jesus was suppressing the warriors of heaven because he was willingly embracing the will of his father. In the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is the, this mighty, full mane, all-inspiring all lion. You see him and he's just majestic. And you have, you have Edmund who has committed treason with the, with the wicked white witch. And rightfully, for his treason, he is to die. He is supposed to die. Except that, that Aslan, the, the honorable, the, the long-awaited lion, has finally returned, and Aslan, without anyone else knowing, has made a deal. His life for the life of Edmund. And nobody else knows except, except Aslan and the wicked white witch. So Edmund is returned, and, and Lucy and and uh, Susan, they follow Aslan, and, and Aslan begins to descend under his own power these, these incredible, enchanting stone steps. And surrounding these stone steps, as, as Susan and Lucy watch from afar, are, are all of these, these pesky creatures, and they're, they're mocking him, and they're laughing, except Aslan just, just, just towers over every single one of them, and, and they're laughing, except you know that at any moment, he could just take his paw and just flick every single one of them off of it into another zip code. And he gets to the top, and he's voluntarily going, and he gets to the top of it, of the steps on the stone table. And these pesky little creatures, they take him and they, they flip him over. And they begin to bind his, his paws together. And Susan and Lucy, in a, in a scene that will just bring tears to your eyes, they begin to cry to themselves, why doesn't he fight back? Why doesn't he fight back? The water is the curse of my existence. Why doesn't he fight back? Why doesn't he fight back? Because you know. You know if the lion would just fight back, he would devour these little things. And they, they take this, this lion's mane and they, they shave the mane from him. And then the wicked white witch, she takes the dagger and she plunges it. She plunges it into the heart of the lion. But the lion didn't refuse to fight because he was passive. Aslan refused to fight because he was willing. Brothers and sisters, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? One is afraid, but one is courageous. One is timid, but one is beautiful. One is powerless. Oh, but one is so, so mighty. One is wonderful and one is wicked.
the Lord Jesus, he wasn't, pa he wasn't passive. He was willing. There's a thought that must have been on Judas's mind all the way up until the time in which he dangled from his own rope. It must have been on the minds of every single one of those executioners that came there that day. When they came there, Jesus looks to, the, to all of his disciples and he looks to all of his executioners and he says to them, you had to come. You had to come. You were supposed to come. You were meant to come. He looks to Judas. He looks to the police. He looks to the chief priests. He looks to the soldiers. He looks to the disciples and he said the scriptures must be fulfilled. You are here not simply because you are wicked, but because God is sovereign and this is his painful providence that this, the worst day in humanity, will one day be the greatest day in all of humanity. You see, that is the paradox, the painful, glorious, wonderful paradox of the cross and of the gospel. The paradox of the gospel is that the pain of providence will lead to the glory of Christ and the good of the church and on that day the worst day in all of humanity the day in which Christ was slain is the day in which the church was saved the day in which each and every one of us could be reconciled to God Almighty the day in which the willing Christ was not the passive Christ but the offered Christ in which we might be reconciled with the sovereign God brothers and sisters do not sit there passively do not sit there apathetically. Do not sit there indifferently. No, raise to your feet and worship the sacrificial lamb. Raise to your feet and worship the one that took the knife in the back for you, oh brothers and sisters. Raise to your feet that knows the pain of providence just as you and trust your life to the Lord. Let's pray together.